When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I will say this, man. I am very amazed that you decided to, you know, let, and I hate to bring this up again, but I have to. I go dead weight from the old show and do this show instead. It's a lot better now. It, it's, it's miles ahead of what it was before. We've only just is this a human talking? Because you sound like a robot. I am. I'm kind of like a robot. I, I'm not. I wouldn't be mad if you sounded like a robot. I would think that was incredible. Uh, I can go for over a thousand dollars a pound. That's you was really being ripped off. I can get you that much. Well, it, 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 not necessarily. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day. Welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. I am Michael. I'm the host and producer of this program. I look forward to once again serve you those conscious coma-inducing vibrations live and direct right now. The program is normally on a Saturday night. Today is a very special Tuesday edition of the program. First-time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show. A place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Joining me tonight on a special Tuesday edition of the program here, Brian Kennard is my guest this evening. After pursuing a degree in finance and economics at David Lipscomb University, Brian ran small business concerns for three years and pulled an 11-year tour in corporate management. In 2009, Brian left his management career to finish his first book, Skullduggery, 45 True Tales of Disturbing the Dead, and in early 2010, opened the independent publishing house Grave Distractions Publications. His latest book, Steinbeck, 
Citizen Spy. Brian obtained two documents from the CIA via the Freedom of Information Act that blows everything away on what we thought we knew. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. How's everyone doing out there? Live and direct, here we are once again. So proud of all of you for being here. I like it when you people show up on a Tuesday night. It's a very, very different kind of show on Tuesday. Much different from the chaos that happens on a Saturday night. Let's see what's going on with my guest already. Wasting no time here, live and direct, is Brian Kennard. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh, how's it going? Jim and Dandy. Let me turn your mic up just a little bit. Hold on one second. All right, talk a little bit there for me. Okay. How is this? Can you hear me now? Yeah, you sound perfect. Well, that's always a plus. Yeah, so how are you, Brian? Is everything going good for you? It is. It is going exceptionally well. Nice. Well, welcome to the Michael Deacon program. Thank you for spending your evening here with all of us. And since this is your first rodeo here on the program, can we talk a little bit about your background here, sir? Sure. Uh, I'm a Scorpio. I like to take long walks on the beach. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah. yeah, I always start off with that. But Me too. You know, Don't a, worry. the owner of Great Distractions Publications. Uh, I've written a couple books. I do uh, freelance work as well and do some ghost writing on the side. Um, and that's been my life for the last seven or eight years. I also understand you're a Freemason. I am. I am a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason. You must have been very curious about well, I, Freemasonry. Course. Yes. What, how did you get introduced to that? Actually, through reading uh, Lincoln Badgett and Lee's Holy Blood, Holy Grail, I, I was 19 and in college, and a friend of mine gave me a copy of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and knew very little nothing about the Freemasons, and read that book, and don't necessarily agree with all their conclusions in the book, but it was really the first time in my life that I had read something that made me question history. I've been told to, you know, question politics and leaders and uh, the change you get back at the gas station, but never history. And that really opened my eyes to the thought that history can be changed. There's a hidden history out there. So through doing research, I uh, read another great book called Born in Blood by John Robinson, who was a history professor at the University of Kentucky that was uh, about a link between masonry and the Knights Templar and uh, made a very compelling argument and also uh, had a lot about what the Lodge does, a lot of the charitable work that it does, and uh, some of the esoteric elements of it. So I decided to join a Lodge when I was 24, 25, and I've been a Mason ever since. And it's been smooth sailing for you, right? Well, uh, if you're implying that being a Mason makes your life smooth sailing, then no. I have just as many trials and tribulations <laughs> as the next guy does. Yes, I just uh, like to throw that out there. In case of those conspiracy theorists out there. Uh, and unfortunately, the great conspiracy is there is no great conspiracy. That's what I think. Uh, at least my uh, 
experiences with the lives have been that if you if there was a great conspiracy and freemasons did control the banking structure and this that and the other you wouldn't see signs for pancake breakfast uh on the road for local lodges uh a lodge meeting is about as boring as it gets Mm -hmm. we talk about things like (laughs) oh the building fund and this needs to get painted and we're doing a you know food drive for this or it's holiday season and we do food baskets and you know we need to do this so it's pretty cut and dry uh business that happens inside a lodge and it would bore everyone to tears if they actually sat through a lodge meeting so brian Let's go back in time just for a moment here. Would you, sure. would you say you had a very normal, conventional upbringing? I would think so. I was, uh, uh raised, uh, Protestant here in the South, uh, in the Church of Christ. Very and, religious, yes. Yes. Went to David Lipscomb University, which is a Church of Christ school, and, um, uh, went to public high school and, uh, I guess that's about as conventional as you get. My mom and dad are still married, and um, I bought the house I grew up in from my parents. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, about as conventional as you can get. Yeah, see, folks, a very normal man here. (laughs) I do like to think I'm an ordinary man with extraordinary interests. Yes, indeed. What are some of your interests? Let me just ask you now. Oh, sure. Uh, History, most definitely. Uh, I've always been fascinated with the stories of the past and how they apply to today. Today, right. I mean, that's the great thing about history. You can't understand what's going on in the Middle East right now unless you go back to the Crusades and well, mm-hmm. even from that. Yes. But without an, a laser focus on what actually happened, not what the victors write, not what the whitewashed versions of history are, but what really happened uh, is a roadmap to where we're at today. Uh, and that's hard to come by. And it takes a lot of filtering and a lot of wisdom and a lot of wisdom I don't have sometimes. Um, but history is always fascinating. Um, other interests, I'm a avid video gamer. That's how I blow off stress. Oh, really? What do you play? Oh, I, right now I make twelve-year-old boys cry at Titanfall. Oh, that's uh, so funny! So you're on you're on the Xbox then? I'm, well, I've got a PS4 also. So oh, okay. But but a buddy of mine called me up the other day and we played a couple hours of Battlefield One on PS4. So I, I use that. My, my wife likes to say that that's my version of golf. Well, yeah, for for sure. At least you're not collecting stamps, like I always say. No, not doing that. But uh, if I could probably make more money collecting stamps than I could ever playing Xbox. Well, some people make a lucrative amount of, of money playing video games. It's kind of uh, frightening. It is, but I am nowhere near that good. So you're, if I was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, even if you aren't good, there's people who stream themselves playing live, and it's it's ridiculous the amount of people that actually watch others playing video games, and they donate money. Perhaps this is an avenue that you should explore. Maybe it is. My son, who will be 16 in a couple weeks, I can't even believe that. He he watches people play games all the time on YouTube. There you go. And and I really don't understand it. I don't don't get it either. (laughs) It it blows my mind. I'd rather much be playing a, a game or participating in something rather than watching other people do it. I concur. But to each their own, correct? Exactly. That's why we have chocolate and vanilla. Right. 
So aside from that, are you a drinker? Are you a smoker? What's going on here? I I do not drink. A little tobacco I, I, every now and then? I, I do. I mean, but that's something every, you know, six or seven months. I do like the, the occasional smoke. I'm just curious because I'm trying to see if you have all the traits of a writer. Oh. It seems like you do. Well, n- not necessarily. I, Steinbeck. It's a rite of passage. Hemingway. Uh, yeah, most of them mm-hmm. drank heavily. Oh, yes. So. Oh, yes. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a moment here. But before we do, you know, I'm also very curious about how you came to write this paranormal book. Well, I wouldn't call Citizen Spy a paranormal book. I mean, well, I wouldn't really either, but it kind of goes along the lines there. Skullduggery. Oh, we're talking about Skullduggery. No, yes. I thought we were talking about uh, Steinbeck's oh, no, Citizen no. Spy. Oh, no, no. Not Steinbeck so sorry. Yet. It's okay. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, well, that's how, an how interesting did, story right. in and of itself. How did that happen? Because you have... You know, Steinbeck, and we're talking about the CIA, and we're going to get into that, too, here. But um, now I'm just fascinated with how that came to be. That was your first book, too. Yeah, Skullduggery, 45 True Tales of Mm -hmm. Disturbing the Dead. Um, I was in business management for years and years and years, and it made me a rather miserable young man. And one day my wife told me, why don't you just quit? And I had a decently lucrative job. I looked at her like she'd grown a, a horn out of the center. Mm-hmm. And said, right. What would I do? And she, she asked me, well, what do you want to do? And that was probably the first time since high school anyone had ever asked me, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be when you grow up? Because I certainly didn't want to be doing what I was doing. So I said, well, I had started getting interested in grave robberies through a story about Charlie Chaplin. And I'll tell that here in just a second. Nice. And started kind of collecting these stories. And we've talked a little bit about history and hidden history. And stories of grave robberies were really the hidden history of people's lives because most biographies end with, and -and so-and-so died on whenever and his funeral was attended by end of story. It's not the end of, of the story <laughs> when someone has their remains yes. uh, taken away. Well, anyway, I said, well, I'd really like to finish this book I'm working on. She said, well, why don't you do it? So I thought, well, hell, why don't I do it? So I quit. Just I like that. You, a couple weeks yeah. later and just quit. Just like that. Much to my surprise, yes. I didn't think I was going to do it, but I did. And um, left it all behind. Have not regretted it since. And finished working on the book and went the self-publishing route and did all the work on it myself. And it really could have been a lot better. Uh, lessons learned after now uh, laying out and doing ebooks for, you know, probably about a hundred different titles at this point over the years. Um, but it showed me that I could actually publish a book. So I thought, well, why don't I do this for other people? And Grave Distractions Publications was born. So at Grave Distractions, we've published everyone from Henry Lincoln, who was one of the uh, co-authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which, of course, sparked the the, uh, the work of the Da Vinci Code. Right. And uh, Robert Eisenman, who was one of the world's leading Dead Sea Scroll scholars. Did you like that movie, by the way? Sorry to interrupt you there. Oh, uh, the Da Vinci Code? Yeah. It, I I thought it was a, a fair adaptation of the book. Uh, unfortunately, the way they shot Rosalind Chapel, 
it makes it look like it's about five times bigger than it is. Mm, uh, yeah. There are a few inaccuracies with that, but uh, I thought it was Da Vinci Code was a a good work of fiction um, for for Brown, and it exposed a lot of people to those uh, esoteric conundrums of the right. Prime of Zion and uh, uh, the whole bloodline of of Jesus theory. Yeah, it did serve a purpose for those who are in the, I guess you could say, they're not very knowledgeable in all of that. No. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, the first time I visited Roslyn Chapel was in 1999, before the publication of The Da Vinci Code. And I went with my best friend from high school, uh, Craig Bryant, and he uh, he and I went to Roslyn, and I think there might have been one other person in the chapel at the time. It was incredible to have basically have the entire place to yourself. Uh, my wife, Laura, and I went back in 2007, and there were busloads of tourists. I mean, you could not move without bumping into somebody, and it wasn't the same thing. Uh, there wasn't the the hallowed hall feel of it that uh, I had when I went the first time. So that's kind of the boon and bane of people getting in on on certain secrets, especially something as, as stunning as Roslyn Chapel. Yeah, I, I agree, definitely. So your your book, by the way, <laughs> yes, your book. Go ahead and, and plug where you could where we could all find your book, Skullduggery. Uh, well, actually, Skullduggery has been taken off the market. Oh, has uh, it? It has. I am going to be revamping that uh, probably within the next year. So I went ahead and t- took the old version of it down, uh, and we'll probably be reworking that some. So if you got a got a copy of it. Great. If not, you can hear some of the stories tonight, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but all our books uh, that we've published, you can find at gravedistractions.com uh, and have a wide variety of authors, and I'm sure you'll find something you're interested in there. Yeah, there's something for everybody there. Hopefully so. Did this book take you a long time to write, by the way? I On and off, it took me uh, about a year and a half to write that one. Uh, it was not a full-time endeavor uh, until the very end. Uh, I did the, the last big push in three or four months. Uh, like with any book, there's a lot of research that goes in into nonfiction. Um, a lot of things that you wouldn't think that you would have to either look up or know, but when you're writing something, you end up thinking, well, gosh, what did lanterns look like in 1847? And to set a scene, and you have to research those type things. You have to assess the validity of your sources. Um, you have to see if you can go back as far as source documents on things uh, to make sure that no one else's spin has been put on Whatever document you're reading about, it's always best to get the original or get a copy of the original. So there, there's a lot that goes into to that level of research. Uh, but the book almost wrote itself because the stories are so intriguing, and they're not gross and they're not disgusting, and there's really not a, a paranormal element to most of the stories. Uh, I mentioned the Charlie Chaplin story, and uh, Charlie Chaplin died in 1977, and when he died in a, a small town in Switzerland, and two out-of-luck auto mechanics heard about his death and had recently read an article in one of the 
Swiss magazines about the Italian mafia stealing bodies and ransoming them back to families. So they decided that they would try their luck at stealing Charlie Chaplin's body. So one night they go off to the little cemetery and dig Chaplin up. And a day or so later, it's discovered that his body is not there anymore. The Chaplin family is mortified. Oh, yes. They get a ransom letter from these guys a couple of days later. And Charlie's wife pretty much laughed at the prospect of paying to get Charlie's body back. She thought it was a ludicrous idea. Sure. Um, And kind of blew off the body nappers. But as time went on, our auto mechanics got a little more frustrated and upped the ante by saying, listen, we're going to hurt your grandkids uh, if you don't pay us this money. So that's when she got the, the Swiss police involved. They set up a huge sting operation where they monitored all a number of the pay phones around the little village that Charlie lived in Geneva and some of the, the bigger cities. In 1977, this was no small feat. Uh, most of the computer or most of the telephone systems weren't computerized at that time. Um, so they actually had to do physical tracing of the taps from the phone centers to figure out where calls were being placed. So at a predetermined time, the uh, body nappers called in uh, to the Chaplin family to set up the ransom. And the Swiss police were able to trace the call and found them. And within a couple of days of questioning them, uh, got Charlie Chaplin's body back. They reburied it in the same grave over about six feet of concrete to make sure it never happened again. But to think that that could happen in 1977, I mean, we think of body nappings as being something that happened, you know, during the age of enlightenment where medical students would go out and dig up fresh bodies as cadavers. That isn't always necessarily the case, uh, and those stories go on almost to this day. Yeah, it's fascinating, really. Can you imagine someone uh, sending you a ransom note about your, your parents' body being dug up and they want you to pay a, a certain amount of money? Isn't that fascinating? I, it's very it, unusual, rather. It, it's it's bizarre. I, I think neither of my parents would care very much, nor would I, but uh, yeah, I could see how that could be a, a tad bit unnerving, to say the least. Yes, definitely. And another thing I wanted to get into here with you tonight was you are also involved in a, a blog called Grail Seekers. I have not written that in many a year. I think I updated it a couple of years ago. That's taking a step back to my previous life uh, in, in business management, that was kind of my stress reliever. I've always been interested in the Holy Grail and Arthurian legend um, and started writing Grail Seekers as just kind of a lark um, to share some of the thoughts that I had on the Grail and mm-hmm. explore some of the the more esoteric avenues of history. Um, did a number of interesting things with Grail Seekers over the years, and I almost it's where I got my start in, in writing, so to speak, um, but I also got to do a number of interesting things with it. Um, a few years back, I was interviewed by a, a major European magazine about the Nantos Cup being stolen. That, that's a, a small olive wood bowl. It 
in Wales that is purportedly the Holy Grail. It was stolen yes. a couple of years back uh, and has since been returned. Uh, unfortunately, between the time I was interviewed by this magazine, uh, the cup was returned and they never ran the story. But uh, it, it's fascinating to me how the power of words and just sitting at your computer typing something and sharing it with the world can open up opportunities. Oh, it really can. It, it, it can, uh, because ideas are valid. Uh, research is valid. Uh, and if it's something people are interested in, there's enough people in the world that you'll find somebody that's interested in yeah. whatever your interest is. Um, letting your thoughts and your feelings out there into the wild is kind of like taking a, a picture of yourself naked and posting it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, well, true. That's a good way of putting it, for sure. Well, that, that's what writing is. I mean, you're you're bearing your soul you're, and your effort yeah. to the world. You're throwing yourself out there, no doubt. And that's the power of the Internet. Well, it is. Uh, and it opens up opportunities. And if nothing else, it can be cathartic. So it's um, definitely a, a venture I'm glad that I, I started way back when. Um not that I've lost the the passion for that topic. Will you come back around eventually? I'm sure I will. Uh, the the Grail is ever enduring, and my interest in the Grail never it wanes, but it never falls off completely. By the uh, way, are you interested in other biblical relics or just the Grail? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant's always fascinated me too. Uh, that yeah. The, the thought that it it could be sitting in a uh, Church treasury in Ethiopia. That's what I heard, yes. Mm-hmm. Graham Hancock wrote a, a wonderful book called The Sign and the Seal years and years ago that, that really advances that theory. And uh, just a couple years ago, might have been within the last year, National Geographic sent one of their reporters to Axum where uh, the – Ark of the Covenant supposedly rests in mm-hmm. St. Mary of Zion's church. Well, actually in the treasury of the church. And, um, he, their reporter interviewed the guardian of the grail. And the guardian is the only one that can actually go in, uh, guardian of the Ark of the Covenant. Sorry, I'm right. mixing up my. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> biblical relics. I'm still with you. Uh, he's the only one that can go in and actually view the Ark. And uh, according to Hancock, a number of those guardians who were not necessarily related, they're chosen by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So it's not a hereditary title. Yeah. You know, I do, re- I do recall seeing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very long and arduous process that's not very well known. Uh, and of course they don't talk about it and the guardian certainly doesn't talk about it and rarely talks to anyone. I'm really skeptical about that, however. I think they've got something. Uh, I don't know what they've got. They but, probably do have something, but if it's the Ark of the Covenant, then that's that's pretty crazy. It, it is uh, pretty wild there. But what, whatever they have certainly has some kind of historical import. Whether if you, you go, you run into the treasury and touch whatever they have and keel over dead, I don't know. Mm. You know, it's, every, every it's time a fascinating tradition. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. Myself, I'm. I just got excited there. Every right. time we talk, or any time I even think of the Ark of the Covenant, my mind goes directly to uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Uh, that came out when I was ten, and I remember that was during a state when my parents uh, took me every Sunday after church. We'd all go to a movie. 
And I was just old enough that I could go into a different theater and see what I wanted. Ah. I think that <laughs> summer I saw Raiders ten times. Wow, ten times. Uh, yeah. It's a great totally film, by the way. It, it's still as good as it was back in the day as it is today. It is. It's a great film. But it truly is. You know, I I have a feeling or I've heard many other biblical scholars say that they believe the Ark of the, of the Covenant was destroyed a long time ago. Uh, on Trajan's Arch in Rome, it depicts something that looks very much like the Ark being marched in into Rome after uh, one of the many sackings of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and I wouldn't doubt that. I don't know, though. The, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't have the answers for that. I, no one does. For and, sure. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's the great thing about the Grail and the Ark and all these other imponderable objects out there. It's it's not so much are we ever going to find it as it is the search for it, the right. corollary history that people who are interested in those things learn along the way. Uh, it's about the spiritual discovery that you have within yourself and asking yourself <laughs> You know, why am I really interested in this? Uh, what, what's in it for me or should there be any, anything in it for me by looking into these objects other than your own personal growth and satisfaction? Um, and that's what either you get about that and other esoteric topics or not. Uh, and I think that those that, that take a, a less literal approach to those things Find a, a more rewarding experience out of it than yeah. those that are actually uh, go out and buy the treasure map and try to dig it up themselves. Like Hitler. Yes. Otto Rahn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, supposedly went after the grail himself mm-hmm. uh, and paid the ultimate price for it. By the way, you, you actually mentioned the Knights Templar who at one time, it was rumored that they possessed the, the grail at one time but of course many people will dispute that claim well it's also been said that they've possessed just about any object of power right. that hadn't been created before their uh, inception and uh, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of rumors about the knights templar even at one time having possession of the holy lance or the spear of destiny Yes, that was that was another one uh, that showed up in the uh, first crusade and actually rallied the uh, crusaders to to fight through hunger and pestilence to take the city of Jerusalem. Uh, supposedly that ended up in the Templars' hands too. Who knows? Who really uh, knows? Yes, it, it, they were also rumored to worship the devil as well. So you know, there's all sorts of silly things that go on. There are. Uh, and the Templars are particularly rife for attaching any kind of uh, caveat or, oh, we can't figure out what happened to this, and we don't know that much about the Templars because we really don't know that much about the Templars. Yeah, we really don't. No, most of their records, they burned themselves before that god-awful day in 1307 when uh, Philip the Fair uh, sacked the temple in Paris and put a lot of them to the flame or the sword, which is one of the greatest travesties of history of all right. time. Uh, I do believe that. But the Templars are a convenient mm-hmm. target uh, for any number of conspiracy, conspiracy yes. theories or the Templars did X, Y, or Z. Uh, 
if they did everything that everyone thought that they did, uh, we probably wouldn't have nation states that we have today. The whole world would be under Templar rule or something equally as silly. Uh, but they're a fascinating group. Very fascinating group. Great history. It is. That's that which is known about them. Well, and you have odd instances. Uh, Matthew Parrish writes about uh, a group of Templars in Jerusalem at a, on the Temple Mound. And there were a group of new French crusaders that had come to the Temple Mount where uh, both the Dome of the Rock is and where the, the Templars' headquarters in Jerusalem was. And they were, the French knights were giving crap to Muslims that were praying there. And the Templars told them to step off and let the guy pray however he wanted to, which is a strange dichotomy when you see how ferocious they were in battle against Muslim forces, too. But they also brokered a number of pieces during the Crusades and tried to find a middle ground in some instances. It kind of depended upon the Grand Master at the time. Uh, but for the time, that that's a, an unusual dichotomy for a, a group whose avowed purpose is to protect Christendom and for what the the ideas were at the time uh, about religious tolerance, which, well, there weren't really many ideas about religious tolerance. Don't you then. wish we actually had a time machine so we could actually see these things? Every day. In real time? I, I often... Hope that I hate that. I, you know, it's so, I, I guess you could say it's a little ludicrous to think that way, but it's kind it's not, of true though. I, you know, I really do wish we had that sort of technology so we could actually see what really happened in history. I, I would love that. Uh, my version of heaven is a very large lot videotape library or well, HD DVD library now, uh, of every event in history, every moment of every day. I'm with and, you. I think of, of how that would be to spend eternity looking into those things. That would be a heaven I could get by. Right, because, you know, most of us go through life thinking we're going to find the answers for everything eventually before we pass, but that's not the case. I thought that up until I was probably about 35, and then I gave up on that. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a bummer, right? It, it it really is. The world is a mysterious place. And there's too many mysteries for one person to solve. And uh, it's kind of it's kind of like you're a rat terrier sometimes and you chase True. Uh, a vermin down X hole or the other one trying to uh ferret out the the truth about X Y or Z and you'd be lucky if you could ferret, ferret out the tr- half of the truth yeah. of X. Uh, but that also makes it interesting. Makes it fun too. Yeah. There's a, there's a 50 50 thing there. There really is. But like I said, it, 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 the older I've gotten, the more I've realized it's more about the journey than it is the actual destination. Exactly. I agree. Now, now what's your take on the shroud of Torin before we go off here too much? Um, the, I, I don't think it's the real negative image of, of Jesus. I think it's the probably 18, a forgery. The 1898 photo, I think that's what you're referring to, right? Yes. Yes, I, I do recall that year for some odd reason off the top of my head, which is really unusual because I don't recall much, or many numbers rather, but that one I do. 
Hmm. That's weird. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, I have no answer for that one. I don't either. It's, it's, you ask one person and all the, the properties can't ever happen and you ask four others and they have 15 explanations as to how the, the image happened. Um, I, I've read a number of books on the, on, on the shroud, even, uh, one that said that it was the shroud of Jacques de Molay, the last grandmaster oh, of the Templars. Yeah. To, to Da Vinci faked it using a very early crude form of, of photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are a thousand theories out there, uh, on that one. And I, I don't think that it's, it's the genuine article, but I, I'm also a cynic too, which you wouldn't think that <laughs> from a guy who looks into the grail and some other things that I've done. Noah's Ark. I think that it, it's a great story. You think it existed? No. I have yeah, a very, might, might have been a big arc, but I have a very hard time believing that one. And to be honest with you, I actually got into an argument about it with a pastor. Huh. I could see that. It was very interesting. I kind of wish that was being recorded. <laughs> well, having been brought up in a churchy background, I understand that. I, I think a lot of the stories in the Bible are allegorical or... I think so, too. I, yeah. The Bible's very... Flood. The Bible's very esoteric. It is. Uh, and there there's a lot of deep wisdom in in the Bible, especially Ecclesiastes, which is my favorite book of the Bible because it's good life advice. Yeah. The religious part uh, of it. Well, you know, all religious texts, they all serve a purpose, I believe. They're all positive in one way or another. Even Satanism has its positive points. Well, we we seek those who do seek a creator or a uh, higher power, however you want to to hang your moniker on, on God. Um we all have our own little way of doing it. Oh, wait, I, hold on. I must stop you there. I, I take that back. I I don't consider Scientology in the same light as the other religions I'm speaking of. Let me just make well, that clear. Well, I, yeah. That, Let me just throw that out there. Yeah, let's, yeah, that doesn't quite count. I mean, when, when you know it's totally made up, then there's a, a problem with that. But yeah. let's just talk about traditional religion. Right, but you know... On that tangent, I've had a group of, of people constantly email me about the flat earth. I'm starting to think that there's some sort of secret cult going on. I keep seeing stuff about that too. And I, really? Interesting. I can't, I can't quite fathom. Are they ribbing me or are they being for reals with this? I, I think there are people out there that really believe it. Ah. Uh, I, 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 I don't mm. know. I don't, I don't see the attraction to that myself. I don't either. I don't get it. I mean, these people constantly bother me about bringing on a flat earther on the program, and I really don't see the purpose because I just have a hard time believing any of that rhetoric, and they actually have conferences about the flat earth nowadays. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that is. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I, I still don't get that one. That, that one flummoxes me to this day. But uh, Asinine. Asinine, that's all I have to say. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, so back to Scientology, I just think that's a dangerous thing. It, it is. Uh, from what I know about it, and I don't know uh, a lot about Scientology. I, I probably know a little bit more than, than the average person, but um, it's 
kind of set up like the Amway of religions, uh, from what I understand. And, you know, when you have to, to pay someone tens of right. thousands of dollars to seek enlightenment, uh, there's probably something wrong with what's going on. What about those pastors that rake in the millions? Well, I, I would. How do we feel about those people? I, I think that they might want to go back and revisit the gospels on that one. And there's a lot of them, sir. There are. There are. And for what they say that they're doing for the glory of God, I can't pass judgment on. Yeah, I can't. We, that's not what we're doing here for sure, but no. we are bringing light to these, these subjects. Yes. Cause I think someone has to. Yeah. But if you're driving around a Bentley and you're a man of God and you pass by someone who has a broken down Yugo, there's a problem with I, that. Yes. I agree. And you know, they can choose to address it or not, or their, their flocks can choose to address that however they want. If they don't choose to address that, then that's their issue. It's their money to give to whoever they want to. And it's the prerogative of the, the leaders of whatever church that is or whatever religious entity that is to let those people spend their, the donation money as they wish. I personally, uh, like the vision of my good buddy Charlie Milson, who if he's listening tonight, I hope I'm not embarrassing him by oh, saying no. this, who is a preacher in Westmoreland, Tennessee. Uh, he runs the, the food bank there and has scraped together enough resources to start a homeless shelter there. Um, Charlie's about the, the most down-to-earth, holiest man I've ever met. Um, he was actually the guy I was playing Battlefield 1 with on oh, Sunday. Oh, nice. But, uh, very cool. Very cool guy. Yeah. But he exemplifies what I think a leader, a religious leader should be. He yeah, walks the good. walk. He talks the talk. He gives a lot to the community. And... Uh, he drives a beater. God love you, Charlie, if you're listening, but you mm-hmm. do. Right. And yeah, I mean, he puts on no airs. He has a small house. And, but that's, I think a lot of religious leaders could take a lesson from Charlie Milson. Modest living. Yes. I, you I know. Mean, Sounds like a great guy. He, he is. He's an awesome guy. And I'm probably getting a text message from him right about now if he's listening. Very cool. Yeah, I definitely like the sound of that. He he seems like a great person indeed, a great soul, a great heart. He is. He definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the Steinbeck book. Okay, let's do that. Yes. Citizen Spy, I, I recall the name, and I thought this was a very interesting topic. The author, the very famous author and his connection with the CIA, and of course... Ernest Hemingway being mentioned in the same FBI file or FBI document, rather. There's that's there's odd. A ton of crossover. That's very uh, odd. It, it is. Uh, Hemingway had a had an odd relationship with the intelligence community. Anyway, he uh, did a, a a number with the FBI in Cuba during World War II to ferret out Nazis and wasn't really successful at that. Uh, when he was a war correspondent, his uh, he had connections with the OSS and uh, actually took a group of French partisans and kind of formed his own little resistance unit during the Second World War uh, and went out and did crazy stuff with them uh, against the Nazis. So Hemingway was an, was an interesting fella uh, in that aspect of his life. Steinbeck 
was a little more circumspect about what he did than Hemingway. Whereas Hemingway was out fighting bulls, Steinbeck would, was the, more the type to sit in a corner and listen and talk to people. And he was involved with, uh, the intelligence community from World War II also. Uh, he worked very closely with, um, William Donovan in the early days of the OSS. Right. What he exactly did, we're not a hundred percent sure. Uh, a lot of the OSS records are created up in the National Archives if they still exist anymore. And Steinbeck's, a lot of Steinbeck's work with the OSS has never really been fully revealed. Uh, but I think it gave him a taste of the intelligence community and a introduction into the intelligence community that carried over to his 1947 trip to the Soviet Union, uh, where he wrote, uh, he was one of the first journalists that was allowed into Russia after the Second World War and, and more or less had as free a reign to go where he wanted to in the country as, as any journalist had before, uh, or after World War II, I should say. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the night for him and Robert Kappa go on their excursion throughout Russia, which Steinbeck chronicles in a Russian journal, he was hosted by Walter, Walter Beetle Smith, who was yeah. the ambassador mm-hmm. to the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, Beetle Smith was also Eisenhower's right-hand man during the Second World War, consummate army man, but they had dinner at the uh, U.S. Embassy there. And Steinbeck goes throughout the country, and Kappa takes, is a famous war photographer and takes pictures of everything he can. Steinbeck writes uh, about his experiences, and it's a wonderful book to capture the, the post-World War II Soviet Union. It also reads like an intelligence estimate. As you read through the book, Steinbeck lies. He mentions at one point that they went to a, an air show, and he really wanted to get down on the airfield because, or down around the planes to take a look at them and ask a bunch of questions because he didn't know anything about airplanes. Okay, well that's kind of a patent mm-hmm. lie. Yes, Steinbeck had taken flight lessons, and during World War II, he had spent an entire summer flying around with a B-17 crew to write the book Bombs Away. So Steinbeck knew a little bit more than your average bear about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aircraft, which kind of brings me to some interesting documents that have been recently declassified since I wrote the book. Uh, and in Citizen Spy, I speculated that Steinbe- that night that Steinbeck had dinner with Beetle Smith, or before then, but he was asked to simply keep his eyes open and report back what he saw. Because Steinbeck also talks about production figures in uh, the tractor factory in Stalingrad and what they're producing there then and any number of little things like what rubles are going for on the black market and things that you and I think would be local color type pieces, but for an intelligence machine of a country that has no idea what's going on in the Soviet Union, this was a huge boon to the CIA. By the way, Steinbeck wasn't a communist for those who are wondering. Oh God, no! I just want to make that clear. No. Yeah, I know he wasn't. I, I know his stance. Yeah, he 
there's a number of, of letters I cite in the book that make it very, very clear that Steinbeck thought that communism was the bane of humanity, that literally communism could snuff out any intellectual movement in any country at any time. He hated communism. And Brian, let me just make a quick uh, note here with you. Knowing what you know now, what exactly is your view on Russia? Oh, on the Soviet Union now? Everything now, now, today. What's your current view? I think they're the evil empire that's playing as nice as they can. (laughs) I'm glad we're both on the same page here because I've been saying that for a long, long time, and I never really changed my stance on a lot of things. I've been pretty persistent here on this program, and I've always been very cautious about those folks out there. I think they're just as dangerous and just as wily as they were in 1983. I'm with or you. Or 1953, for that matter. I'm with uh, you. Yeah, it's the same mindset. It's been dressed up a little bit. But, um, yeah, they're still as, as dangerous as ever. Have you ever heard of the term wolves in sheep clothes? Uh, many a time. I've even been a wolf in sheep clothes <laughs> before. I think we all have at one time or another. <laughs> I think so, fortunately or unfortunately, given the the situation. Yes. But by the way, before we even get back into the CIA, who is your favorite writer, sir? I it it would either have to be Steinbeck, Tom Robbins or or Frank Herbert. Not bad. Good. Good lineup there. Dune is one of my favorite books of all time uh, and was another one of those uh, eye opening books to me. Uh, I've heard that. Up. I've heard that before. It's it, it, it's an amazing book, and there's a lot of philosophy in it, and there's a, a, a also a, a lot of what humanity can be and what humans can actually accomplish if they put their mind to it uh, is a lot of the subtext in Dune, uh, and that's that's a fascinating topic too. Uh, anyway, I highly recommend the if you hadn't cracked it open yet. Mm-hmm. So back to the CIA, here we go. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. Steinbeck finds himself in Russia and writes this book that's very accurate yet full of personal fictions. And just recently, uh, you might have heard the story about the CIA declassifying 13 million pages right. of documents. A lot of them. So this, of course, the first night that was open to the public, I uh, searched through and found a 1948 memo that was kind of a, a daily briefing for the Director of Central Intelligence. And dated March 1st, 1948, there's an entry that says, Checked with the Office of Operations concerning Air Force request that we determine if Mr. Kappa and Mr. Steinbeck, recently returned from trip to Russia, were available to discuss with Intelligence Division USAF. Uh, Office of Operations queried the New York Interagency Office, and so advised the Air Force. Uh, reply has not been received from the New York office. So if Steinbeck and Kappa weren't gathering intelligence in Russia while they were there, why would the Director of Central Intelligence be briefed that the Air Force wanted to talk to them? And if they weren't there at the behest, at, at, not at the behest, but at least with the mission of coming back with open eyes and ears, why would the Air Force be requesting to the, make a request to the CIA that they could talk to Kappa and Steinbeck? 
Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Funny. Yes. Memo there. So that's goes in line with pretty much everything I had said during uh, that chapter of Citizen Spy. But the the linchpin was a letter that I found through Freedom of Information Act. Yes, the letters. Request. The letters. Mm-hmm. And in January of 1952, Steinbeck writes Walter Beetle Smith, who is now the director of Central Intelligence, who, if you remember, was the ambassador to the Soviet Union when he was there in 47. Right. And uh, all these letters are at uh, SteinbeckCitizenSpy.com. You can go and look there, and you can go to the CIA website. They're up there, too. Um, but anyway, Steinbeck writes a rather impassioned letter to General Smith saying that he's going to Europe and the Mediterranean that summer and um, says he'll be going anywhere he, he pretty much damn well pleases because he's writing articles for Harper's Collins. My, I'm sorry, Harper's Bazaar. Uh, and he says at the end of the letter, again, I shall be pleased to be of service. The pace and method of my junket, together with my intention of talking with a great number of people of all classes, may offer particular advantages. And earlier in the letter, he says, if during this period uh, I can be of any service whatsoever to yourself or to the agency you direct, I shall only be too glad. John Seinbeck has offered his services to the CIA. Well, you might think, well, that's great. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there's all sorts of people that offer their services to the agency. I'm sure Arnold Schwarzenegger has and Warren Beatty. Who knows what A-list celebrity has? Yeah, that's, probably, a, that's another. I was just going to say, that's another strange thing about the CIA. They are always looking into different celebrities, and I always thought it was pretty bizarre that they would pick Steinbeck. Steinbeck might have picked them. Or, yeah, or the other way around, too. Well, Steinbeck was uh, had an uncanny act ability to observe people. Uh, I got to discuss uh, his life with his son, Thomas Steinbeck, who regrettably passed away this last August. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Thomas, I thought he was, al- I thought he was alive still. Uh, he was, and I spent many an hour on the phone with Tom and considered him a friend. And Tom was a great guy. And boy, could he tell a hell of a story. Nice. Uh, he, he was a very down to earth guy. Uh, Loved his father deeply. Yeah. Uh, and I brought all this to him and said, Tom, here's what I found. And through his wife, who I uh, got to first, told her what I had. And after I gave her my spiel, she said, you've got to talk to Tom. I'll have him get in touch with you in a couple of days. And I talked to Tom a number of years ago about Steinbeck's interest in the Holy Grail, which kind of led me on to this the topic of Steinbeck and the CIA, oddly enough. Right. Um, And talked to him for about an hour about that, years before I even knew there was this connection with the agency. Mm. And when when I talked to Tom, he listened to me for about 20 or 30 minutes as I pitched my case. And um, one of the things I found out was that the FBI has destroyed all of the originals of Steinbeck's FBI records. That's interesting. Yeah. Wonder why. Uh, well, they've destroyed like Walter Cronkite and Rosa Parks. Mm, they say yeah. they have. But um Tom asked me at the end of that when I told him that he didn't say a word throughout the entire thing until I got to the point 
that's a, you know, I requested some additional documentation and a declassification review on his FBI file, which is actually what led me to the CIA connection. Uh, and Tom said, well, do you think they still have them? I said, well, of course they still have them. It's all horseshit. Right. Of course they have them. They just don't want to give them up. So Tom said, I agree. J. Edgar Hoover hated my father. And we talked on for, for that. And Tom would call me up at odd hours of the night. And we just talk about any number of things, but about his father or he'd think of something that, that happened during his childhood that all of this suddenly made sense to Tom Steinbeck. Hmm. Uh, like a fun would, guy. I'm sorry. Say again. I said, it sounds like he's a fun guy too. He was God love him. Tom's mm-hmm. probably one of my favorite people I've ever met, uh, or ever talked to. Uh, I hate that he passed away. Uh, we, the world lost a, a rare commodity when, when Tom Steinbeck died. Yeah. That's uh, terrible to hear. It always, is. always terrible to hear that. Yeah. But back to the letters. Um, Steinbeck actually got a response back from the director of central intelligence, uh, that said, I greatly appreciate your offer of assistance you made in your note of January 28th. You can indeed be of help to us by keeping your eyes and ears open on political developments. And he goes through to, to say, you know, if you're in Washington and want to come by and talk to us uh, before you leave, uh, why don't you come by and do that? So it's pretty evident from that mm-hmm. that there was a connection between John Steinbeck and the CIA. You know? I think it's pretty clear now, yeah. It it really is. You wouldn't think that from some academia out there um, who really didn't appreciate me finding all this when they'd missed it for all these years. but. Um, I think it's a pretty compelling case I make in the book. I think so, too. And today, I'm not sure many people are even aware of this, that the CIA and the FBI don't share intel. I'm not sure many people are, are aware of that. No, especially back then, they did. Um, but they don't do that today. No, they really don't. Uh, there there are some some bits of crossover. Uh, Very rarely, though. Yeah, but in in cases where... Something in an FBI file pertains to the CIA, which is actually how I figured all this out. If you look at Steinbeck's FBI file, there are a number of redactions made for national security reasons Mm. and made at the behest of the CIA. And it's right there, and it's been sitting right there for 20 20 or 30 years, ever since Steinbeck's FBI file was released to the public. Uh, And nobody ever caught it and followed up on it. And I guess the thought of Steinbeck working with the CIA was so fantastical that no one ever went down that rabbit hole. I just happened to be the guy that had the time on my hands to do it. And you did it, and they weren't too thrilled, were they? Not really. I spoke with one academian who I won't name, but he is kind of was a muckety-muck, or still is, in the Steinbeck community. And I had expected the conversation to be based on my research methods, how I'd cited things, questioning me about this source or the other, or conversations with Tom. No, there was a tiny bit of that. He said he was impressed with my research, but he was more concerned that the margins of my book were too small and asked me why my margins were so small. Hmm. Yeah. Weird. Very. Yeah, why would he make a note of that? Hell if I know. Yeah, that's a but strange observation. It is. And to defend myself on margins instead of the content of my work, 
was kind of a waste of my time. Yeah, but, it kind of is. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, and other academians have contacted me and have been very supportive, but can't really come out and say anything one way or the other because they're dependent upon funding. And this is a radical new idea in the, the world of John Steinbeck, who's been studied by countless people since Grapes of Wrath was written. So they dismiss it, which is fine. It, it doesn't make it any less true or doesn't make my findings any less valid. Uh, and there will come a time when the agency releases enough documents that it will be blatant. There will be no, well, that might not mean this or I don't know. That's the only problem I see, that we have to wait so long before we get any more juicy uh, documents leaked out. But unfortunately, that's that's the way of intelligence work. Right. Uh, I, I was really lucky to be able to talk to an ex-CIA officer about the book and interview him. I refer to him in the book as TC. Uh, and he, he was beyond reproach. Uh, I, I really don't want to go into any more as to how I know he was the genuine article, but if I told you, you'd know that he was the genuine article. Yeah, I hear you. And one of those type things. Um, but we never discussed anything like operations or dates or I code see. names. Or yes. Anything Nothing like too that. detailed. No, no, no. He wouldn't do that, and I sure as hell wouldn't ask him because I didn't want to know something I shouldn't. Yeah, that's that's probably a good thing. You don't want to put yourself in, in a weird position like that? Well, not only that, I didn't know that if he told me something that was innocuous mm. or I thought was innocuous mm. might actually mean something. So who knows, maybe some something that – protocol that was set up in the late 70s or early 80s in the Soviet Union still exists or there are remnants of whatever asset network that could be traced back through one tiny thread of information, even if it's 30 or 40 years old, could put somebody's life at risk or put our intelligence apparatus at danger. I would never want to do that. Yeah, that's a, so, you don't want to carry that around with you. Good Lord, no, uh, because who knows how many other lives or civilian lives could depend on that. Right. I know that sounds overly dramatic, but with the intelligence community, you never know. Yeah, you don't. It's true. You don't know what games are being played. You don't know <clears throat> Pardon me. All how good. important a single thread is that if you pull on and it's made public, what that can do. Uh, because we're not privy to that information. And to a certain extent, we don't need to be. Um, but to a certain extent, we have to be able to hold agencies like the CIA accountable and have to know enough about what they're doing as citizens to be able to say, hey, that's great, or whoa, guys, we don't need to be doing this. And going back to the CIA right now, and not, well, not right now, but just a couple years back, I'm sure you're very familiar with the Iran-Contra affair, correct? I am. What's your take on that? It, it, I always like asking people that, and matter of fact, I actually talked to Freeway Ricky Ross on the program before, and he was just a pawn for the CIA. <laughs> well, there are a lot of pawns for the CIA. And yeah. I think the Iran-Contra affair was pretty rapacious uh, 
in what we did, but we don't know what the bigger game was in that. We think we know, but with any intelligence operation, we they're never going to admit what all the moving parts. Are. Yeah, they they won't tell us a hundred percent on everything. No, they never do. No, they they never will. So what if we gained X amount of intelligence through that entire pipeline to undermine the Russians at the height of the Cold War to do X, Y, or Z that we'll never be privy to? I can't make the moral judgment on, okay, this was horrible without all the information. So, and I know that's kind of a Pollyanna way to look at the agency. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And I don't necessarily think that that needs to always be the case. We do need to be able to hold these people accountable. And I think there are a great number of people in the CIA that would agree with that statement, too. It really makes you wonder, though, about the CIA. If it does. If they're still up to their old tricks. Well, they, they know how to play dirty. Oh, yeah. You know, speaking of the CIA, I believe Pablo Escobar's um, son made claims that his dad was working for the CIA, and I don't, I don't actually find that surprising to say, uh, to be honest with you, Brian. I, I don't either. Um, he might have. Well, and we we have this concept too of what working for the CIA is. Right. That too. It's another thing that I go back to in Citizen Spy. What does that actually mean, working with the CIA? And one of the things that TC told me about, especially in the 50s and 60s, is the CIA had a huge number of what they call walk-ins, which were people just like Steinbeck that were not nearly as famous, who would contact the agency and say, hey, I'm going to be going to aerospace conference in Oslo. What can I do for the agency? And you've got to understand that we're talking about people that were part of the greatest generation, where how many of these people were veterans and had served in World War II? And now they want to still do something for their country. So the agency in the early days was underfunded and used a number of these walk-ins for passive intelligence. They weren't passing off secrets. They weren't blowing up bridges. They weren't seducing women James Bond style. They were going somewhere. They might have been told, hey, if you're, you've got a train trip from X place to Y place. While you're on the rail, look for railway cars that look like this. Count how how many of them you see, what time they're going through, and tell us that. And that would be it. So that's not what we conventionally think of as working for the CIA. That's keeping your eyes and ears open and passing along intelligence, which guess True. what? That's working for the CIA. Right. That's what it is. It's It's not the James Bondy stuff. It's a lot of stakeouts. It's a lot of sifting through financial documents. It's a lot of boring crap. It seems like it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of intelligence work is. It's not the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy stuff. It's looking at reconnaissance maps or photos. It's putting together uh, this event, that event, and the other event to predict future events. Sure. That's intelligence work. Mm-hmm. So the flashy stuff is what we focus on, like, oh, well, Pablo Escobar worked for the CIA. Well, Pablo Escobar might have worked for the CIA in the fact that he passed along information he knew about communist guerrillas in South American countries, 
and possibly other drug lords. Yeah. I'm sure he was a bit of a, well, maybe I shouldn't say that on the air. Well, yeah. But I think would. you know he might have been pro- possibly an, an informant. Could have been. Mm-hmm. But, so, you know, you put it that way, and it doesn't sound like he's working for the CIA. True. But he's working for the CIA. Because that's, <laughs> right. that's the majority of what the CIA yeah. does. <laughs> what about so, Frank Sinatra? He was also rumored to have been a spy for the CIA. There was an, an a newspaper article, I, I, I'll have to dig this up and I can't remember the source, that actually said that Sinatra had offered his services to the agency back in the day. Oh, I see. That's out there somewhere. I, I've got it in my files somewhere, and I can't remember what year it was or what publication. But uh, that was, you know, public knowledge that mm-hmm. Sinatra offered. Now, whether that was the agency letting that information get out there, because they certainly didn't with Steinbeck, um, for their own ends, we'll never know. Or whether he actually did anything with the agency, we'll never know. Yeah, we won't really know if he was occasionally getting lost in and around Paris. Which was another thing that happened <laughs> with that Tom told me about. I yes. love that story. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought you could briefly go over that just here because I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, on a couple of different occasions, uh, Steinbeck l- lived for a number of months in Paris with his family and every Thursday, I believe it was uh, on one of the occasions that they lived in Paris, uh, John would take Tom and John the fourth, uh, John's other son out to what Tom said, get lost in and around Paris. They just kind of pick a direction and drive. Tom, after I started talking to him about all this, remembered that just about every time that they got lost in Paris, John would always happen to run into somebody he knew. And they would go off. Hmm, how weird. And talk for a few minutes, yeah. And then he would come back, and they'd go about their day. So Tom put the pieces together that John very well might have been using him and his brother as cover. That's so funny. Yeah, I, Tom advanced that theory to me. That wasn't anything that I'd ever heard of, heard before. <clears throat> John also would receive an attaché case at their Paris home um, by someone from the State Department once a week, and they would come back and pick it back up. Tom never knew what was in that, but he remembered asking someone who that was that kept bringing the briefcase in, and he was told it was someone from the State Department. Now, what was in those briefcases, what Steinbeck was doing, who knows? He had a, he was a very heavy presence on Radio Free Europe, uh, and did a number of interviews. It could have just been as innocuous as that. Mm-hmm. Or it might not have been. We don't know. Speculation is always fun, however. It is. But once you start having these little pockets of smoke pop up. Right. Uh, and there's, there's a number of other ones throughout that, that I cite throughout the book. Coupled with the letters, coupled with some of the documents that we have now, make a pretty strong case that Steinbeck was involved with the agency. And it would take a lot to convince me otherwise. Yeah, I I acquiesce. Now, going back here into the present time, what's your opinion on the assassination of Kim Jong-nam? Of course, North Koreans did that. (laughs) Of course. Somebody, Somebody had a Chanel number five bottle of VX gas and sprayed it in his face and the guy died. That's insane though that that nerve toxin was used. It's remarkable. 
It doesn't take much. I mean, we're talking less than the amount of what can fit on a head of a pen will kill you. Now, that's like something out of a movie. That's like some James Bond type stuff there. It is, but it's real. Uh, VX is some nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. Yeah, that was first developed back in the 1950s from what I remember reading. I believe that's correct. Uh, and there are a lot of nasty agents like that out there that uh, will kill off an entire city with uh, a suitcase full of, of agent, uh, of whatever chemical agent or biological agent that, that's been developed. Uh, so that's a scary, scary. It really, it really uh, is. Of warfare. It seems like tensions are running high all around the world right now. I'm just curious now, back to Russia. What, what's your take on Putin? Uh, Putin is an oligarch. Uh, <laughs> he's, you know, no different than anyone that came before him, uh, and that sat in that power or that seat of power. Uh, no matter whether you called him a Tsar or, uh, the Supreme Soviet or, or whatever, uh, he's exactly the same. He's a, a dangerous egotist um, that I think might have or someone with the initials of DT on speed dial on their phone. Mm. <laughs> you might be possibly correct. What is your take on one Donald Trump? Well, I've tried not to say anything about Mr. Trump. Uh, you gotta let the media. cat out of the bag every now and then. I think he's dangerous. I, there, I don't even know how, how else to, to, what else to say about him. He's, he's dangerous. I don't think he knows what he's doing. And, um, I've said the same thing last year and you should have seen the way many people were anti, uh, Putin and all of a sudden now they're all for it. Yeah. They're all on mm. his side. Uh, politics makes strange bedfellows and all that. It really is. Uh, it's it's a very fascinating time we live in here in 2017. Only almost three months in 2017, and the ride has been wild as it can be, sir. It, it has, and I got a feeling it's not going to slow down. I don't think so either. I think we're picking up momentum as we go. Hopefully it's... Momentum towards something grand instead of something disastrous. Oh, and I yes. hope I'm wrong about Trump. Um, I, I really think a do. lot of, I, I think a lot of people are. I want to be optimistic. I, I have no dog in the fight. I say this every episode when I talk about politics. I, I wish everyone well and, and for the best for this country, even though oof, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, no one does, unfortunately. I'm hoping he is a savant. And there's some master yeah. plan for the greater good. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Amen. We'll leave it at that for sure. And we are coming uh, to the cl- uh, close here with you, Brian. But I, I do want to just have a little bit more fun with you here before I let you go. Sure. But let, let's get, let's get the business out of the way. Do you have any other books in the horizon? I, yes, sort of. I, I'm doing quite a bit of ghostwriting right now, and that's sucked up some of my time. But I do have uh, one story that I am researching right now that is about a Navy plane that went down right after the Korean War uh, under some unusual circumstances that I've been working on. Um, I've also been picking at this forever, the story of 
Deacon Brody, who was a cabinet maker in Edinburgh in the 1780s, who was Robert Louis Stevenson's inspiration for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You go deep with the stories, Brian. I you go you know, deep in there. I'm like a crow. I see a, something that that's bright and shiny out there, and I've got to look at it. You just dissect everything, don't you? I try to, and I, yeah, well, I'm you afraid do a, I'm going to be the guy I warned about that. You do a good job, by the way. I've read the the Steinbeck book. I think you do a remarkable job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I had one triple dog dare that I have to get out of the way this evening. Uh-oh. Uh, a friend of mine triple dog dare me to give a shout-out to Rainbow Kitty and Captain Phil tonight. Rainbow Kitty? Yes. So I've done that, and... If that person's listening, uh, who keeps saying that it was not a dare. And Doctor Who? Uh, no, Captain Phil. Oh, Captain. I thought you said Doctor Phil. I was going to no, say Cap- no, Doctor Phil. What on earth? I know it's it, it's rather silly of me to even mention that, but that's okay. I, I felt compelled to do so. I dig the but names. I, <laughs> they're good. But anyway, so who knows what what I will end up uncovering next? Um, but I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know. I'm genuinely interested in, in your next your next project, sir. And Thanks. yeah, one other thing: Are you a movie guy or a TV personality? Well, what's what tickles you? Both kind of do. I I used to say I hated TV, but there in the last five years, there's been a lot of really good content out there. Uh, BBC America does some great shows. Uh, you know, well, and BBC in general. Uh, does so i appreciate both movies and tv series i like the fact that tv series can get a little bit deeper into storylines and character development simply because they've got more time to tell the story than a movie right mm-hmm. so i enjoy that aspect of it but i also enjoy a good movie as well so yeah. I, i'd say i'm about a 50 50 guy on that are you watching game of thrones i did i you fell out I, I did. Like me. I, yeah, I dropped off too. I dropped off of Walking Dead too. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of done with it myself. It got a little silly there, right? It kind of did. And the only reason anybody's watching it is to see who dies off next. That's and true. I, I just, I couldn't get behind that anymore. So, um, what about, yeah, did you, sorry to cut you off there, but have you seen the movie Arrival? That seems to be a topic of discussion here on this program all of a sudden. I did, and I thought it was a very, very highbrow version of Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five. Oh, interesting that you would make that that connection there. I didn't well, even think about that. But yeah, the Trothamidorians are, as Vonnegut says, unstuck in time. Sure. And they're the pretty much the same aliens as as the aliens in Arrival. So oh. yeah, it's it you you dress up Slaughterhouse Five and. That's the arrival. The aliens in Arrival, they kind of had a H.P. Lovecraft feel for them, I, I would have to say. They did. Uh, that was and, cool. And they, the visuals were great in that. I love the visuals and the li- linguistic aspects of the movie. It was pretty fascinating. I hated the end, though. I'm going to have to tell you that, Brian. It really made me hate the film, to be honest with you. The whole old, tired Hollywood f- um, film formula, it, it's just... I, I hate it now. I can't stand it. Well, there, there's a reason it's it's formulaic. Sure, well, I, of course. It has to um, connect with the masses. 
And if you don't think that Hollywood throws out a ton of focus groups. Mm, yeah, focus groups, another thing a lot of people out there aren't even aware of. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, that's a You're a wise man, Brian. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I'm glad that you know about all that because people aren't even aware that they've been pre-programmed for a large part of their life. And that's why I like to say on this program, there's lots of deprogramming that goes on here. Well, like like I said about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, there there are moments in everybody's life that they have some sort of aha moment where they feel comfortable enough to question. And it's what I love about what everybody would call the fringe. I don't even know what uh, you, you call people like us that look into the oddities and ask those questions um, in an intelligent manner. The but, truth seekers and the mystics, I'd like to say. Yeah, whatever hat you want to hang on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a there's a place for that. And hopefully through works like you do and hopefully that I do, knock on wood, um, we open a few eyes and we make people ask a few questions. Yeah. And that's that's about all you can ask for. I agree. So, Brian, I, I must thank you for joining me here on a very interesting conversation, a very interesting interview. Well, thank you. I've had a, I've had a big time being on. had a great time talking to you. So we're going to have to do this again eventually in the near future. Sure. Just give me a holler and I'll be glad to be on. Very cool. But before I let you go, go ahead and plug your website and a final word for everyone out there listening to you, Brian. Well, uh, you can see most of my work over the last few years at gravedistractions.com. And that's got contact information or I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all those neat little places too. Uh, but yeah, if you're looking for some freelance work or you're, you've got a manuscript you'd like published, you can submit it to us. And we, we do traditional publishing at Grave Distractions and we also do freelance work too. So, uh, just contact us and we'll, uh, help you out as best we can. Very nice. So once again, thank you very much for being here on the Michael Deacon program, and we'll touch base with you in the near future, Brian. Thank you very much. All right. Good night. Take care, and I'll talk to you very soon. Good night to you. All right. Bye. Bye. And that was my guest, Brian Kennard. Very interesting guest. A very interesting fella. Love talking to him. And of course, looking at the time here, it's about that time I go away for a little bit. But of course, this is a show about the strange and the unusual. Anything I deem interesting will be discussed on this program. And of course, this is a call-in show. Don't be shy. However, time ran out. Time is usually not on our side. Let me remind you that you can go back to endofdaysradio.org or michaeldeacon.com to check out any previous show that you might have missed. Remember, this show completely depends on its listeners. That means you. I depend on all of you out there to spread the word. Be a friend and share. I also must remind you now that Stan Dale will be a guest next Saturday on the program. I hope to see you there. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I got a college. I got a graduate school.
I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like you can just see it. It's clear. <laughs> appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Holden right now. It's crazy. I had no idea this shit existed before 